Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. The State of Israel was founded in 1948 as a bargain. Its secular liberal majority would steward the country's economy, guarantee its security, and ensure that it stayed a democracy, and its religious minority would maintain the country's so-called Jewish character. For a long time, that bargain worked. But now, some say the fabric of Israeli society is fraying. The country's last election, its fifth election in less than four years, saw the country elect its most right-wing and religious government in history. And to many Israelis, this government's so-called judicial reform suggests that it's abandoning Israel's foundational bargain. Many Israelis feel like they're being forced now to decide between a future as a Jewish state or a future as a democracy. So why does this matter? What does this have to do with foreign policy? Great question. Well, because very important questions about the dimensions or possibility of Palestinian statehood, the durability of Israel's friendships with the U.S. and Europe, and the strength of nascent partnerships with its Arab neighbors can't be answered until Israel first answers its domestic political questions. That's why I'm having two guests today. First is Javi Redig Gore, senior political analyst at the Times of Israel based in Jerusalem. And second is Rabbi Galad Karif, who is a member of Israel's Knesset, aka Parliament, from the center-left Labor Party. Habib is up first and joins me next. Hi, Habib. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu flew to Rome last week to meet with his Italian counterpart, Georgia Maloney. We don't need to talk about anything that happened while he was there. That's I promise that's not what this conversation is about. But but tell us, how did Netanyahu get there? Yeah, it was a bit of an interesting story. And it's not usually interesting how a prime minister travels. Incidentally, today, as we're recording, he's flying to Berlin. And it's not a very dissimilar story. He uh, prefers to fly on Boeing 777s, which are newer than the old fleet of 737s that Israeli airlines um, have. And the 777 has a, a full bed. A prime minister is a very busy man. If he can catch a nap on a plane, that's not a small thing. I don't begrudge him that. The problem is there are only a few pilots who are uh, qualified in El Al, in the El Al airline, to fly the 777. And they did not want to because they are part of a semi-unofficial or, you know, um, creeping uh, protest movement uh, among pilots, among former Air Force pilots and reservist Air Force pilots um, who see in the current judicial reform a profound change for the worse in Israel's um, system of government. Uh, Almost even some of them say outright, you know, an assault on democracy. And they see in Netanyahu the instigator and the culprit. And so Netanyahu uh, was actually forced to fly in a 737, uh, which is a tiny, tiny, you know, difference, right? But the, the, the reason that he was forced to fly in a different plane is is interesting. So, so you mentioned it there. This, this conversation will be about the judicial reforms uh, that, are, that are sweeping up Israel. So we will bid adieu or, or perhaps chow to Prime Minister Georgia Maloney and move to those. So, Haviv, how, how exactly would these reforms uh, change the judiciary and Israel's lawmaking process generally? Israel has what might be one of the simplest systems of government in the world. It has almost no actual institutions. Um, it, it has a single unicameral parliament, a very small one, 
120 members, and they're elected from a country. The entire country is a single constituency. We have no real presidency. Well, there is a president of the country, but it's basically a figurehead. There's no upper house. There's uh, the executive branch, by definition, like in most parliamentary democracies, you know, I don't know what, Belgium or Latvia, um, the uh, government is chosen from within parliament. And that's the party leaders who essentially select most of the members of parliament. All of those details come to say one big thing. There is essentially one institution that is the legislature and executive branch put together. And that is a Knesset wholly run by the party leadership. And so because we have almost nothing, we have almost no checks and balances that anyone can point to, the Israeli Supreme Court over the decades slowly, uh, but really very, you know, I don't know anyone who disagrees with this point that I'm about to make or the sentence I'm about to say, the Israeli Supreme Court has essentially swelled to fill that in that enormous vacuum and become in the process, maybe the most powerful court in the free world. Where the rubber hits the road in actual ordinary lives of Israelis, this has had profound influence, this immensely powerful court. One of the most important questions in the public life of Israel's ultra-Orthodox community, for example is whether or not its young men will have to participate in the military draft, which to them is, is in, their, in their religious beliefs and in their lifestyle, is a disaster. And they're firmly set against it, and they're willing to resist to the point of civil disobedience. The Knesset has, over the f past few decades, <laughs> or really over the past, I would say, decade and a half, passed at least four versions of a bill that won a majority in parliament and that would have settled the question. Now the courts, the court has thrown out all of these, all of these agreements, all of these bills to settle the question of the ultra-orthodox draft, and it has done so for reasons that I am very sympathetic toward. You know, I I served in the military, my father served in the military, and my children will serve in the military. It upsets me that there are people in this country who don't think they need to serve anyway, right? In, either in the military or in civilian national service, which exists. And and so irrespective of where you stand, the point is only that the court, uh, the Knesset found solutions that were agreed upon by a majority of the public representatives, but the court threw them out. And so the ultra-Orthodox believe that the court is at a, in a war with their lifestyle and they don't have the tools to resist. I would say that's the background. That's that's the, the the sort of overarching problem that this reform comes to address. The problem is what the reform actually does. One piece is uh, the Judicial Selection Committee. Long story short, we have this system in which there's a very tense give and take between the court and the government over appointments to the court. And this bill would give the would wipe all that away and give the court, excuse me, the government an absolute majority on that committee, and they could just appoint willy-nilly. Now, not even the parliament, not the coalition and opposition, just the coalition, just the the factions led by the prime minister as essentially the executive branch. Another piece of this is something called the override clause. If the court rules that some piece of legislation is unconstitutional or extremely unreasonable or terribly damaging to fundamental rights, it can cancel that legislation. And the override clause that they're legislating now will allow 61 members of Knesset out of 120, and so in other words, a simple majority, to overcome 
that cancellation. In other words, the Supreme Court will come to the Knesset or to the government and say, hey, this thing you did, this law you passed, it's not kosher, it's not constitutional, it's not legal. And then the government and the Knesset will be able to say in response, yes, it is. And then it's it's done. There's nothing else to know. And uh, a third example of, of what this reform contains is the ruling that basic laws, the basic laws of Israel, they're laws that essentially lay down the structure of our government. Uh, they're quasi-constitutional or maybe proto-constitutional in the sense that they are seen by the court over the years as laws that uh, that you compare other laws to and decide whether they're constitutional, right? In other words, other laws are canceled if they contradict the basic laws. Um, and the court has hinted that basic laws might be subject to judicial review. In other words, that the court could look at basic laws and say, hey, this is good, not good, constitutional, not constitutional. The right argues that how could a court possibly rule that a basic law that's constitutional isn't constitutional? A court can't review, judicially review, or declare a constitution unconstitutional. And so it wants to make the basic laws immune to uh, judicial review. Now, that is eminently reasonable, totally reasonable and completely worthwhile. There's just one problem. Constitutions are hard to change. Constitutions don't require a random majority in the Knesset at any given time, and then and then you can just change them, right? The, the, the way they, they phrase the law, these basic laws will be immune to judicial review. They'll be constitutional. Courts won't be able to touch them. But all the Knesset has to do to pass a basic law is slap the words basic law on it and get a simple majority. Now, this isn't academic either. Right? You, in the last five years, basic laws have been amended 22 times. And what that means is the Knesset doesn't treat the basic laws as constitutional. And so, you know, to demand it of the court is reasonable, but it essentially empowers the Knesset in another way to just effectively erase the court. The reform it looks at this court that is maybe the most powerful in the free world and solves the problem by making it almost completely disappear. And then we're left with the opposite extreme, where we essentially have no institutional checks of any kind. We become the weakest um, system of checks and balances, arguably, probably, uh, in the free world. So why is Netanyahu and, and his government, why are they doing this? And I, I mean that in the least moralistic, ethical way, in, in a pure power politics way. Parties, coalitions, they rarely stay in power forever. Why is this coalition willing to run the risk of a future liberal coalition using these new powers to achieve its political goals? This has been a point raised by the coalition. Um, members of the coalition have mocked the concerns of the center-left and said, you know, if you thought you'd ever come back into power, you wouldn't be so upset about giving the Knesset all the power. Um, but if that's true, Israelis vote in profound ways. They vote very, very tribally, very demographically. Ultra-Orthodox voters vote for ultra-Orthodox parties. Um, progressive Ashkenazi voters vote for parties that are majority progressive Ashkenazi. Um, th there is a stereotype which is... 80% or 70% correct that uh, Mizrahi voters vote Likud and Ashkenazi voters, which is Jews from the Arab world and Jews from the European world, five generations or eight generations back, um, vote 
uh, for the second group, the European Jews vote for Yeshatid or the center left, and Likud being Likud being the party of of Prime Minister Likud Nanyahu. being the party, right? The 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 central largest party of the coalition. So there, Israeli society more than even most, I would say, Western societies is very very fractured into um, these tribes. Now these these tribes are are the the deep rationale behind our system of government what what the reason we have no checks and balances in the system is that we have this one enormous check and balance in our society which is and the reason by the way we have a, a single uh, constituency proportional representation election system why do we ask an israeli when they go to the voting booth to only vote for a single party list and nothing else we don't ask them to vote for individuals the reason is that our elections are effectively, essentially, um, a, a demographic measure of the tribes. And those representatives of those tribes of Israel, and the tribes are complicated. I, I don't want to simplify too much, but they're basically divided by ethnicity, religion, uh, and to some extent, um, uh, socioeconomic status. It's as true of the Arab uh, community of Israel as it is of the Jewish community of Israel. Uh, Arab parties are divided into a very conservative religious party and a very progressive urban party. And they live apart, voters, to these different parties. They live in different places. They live very different lives. Um and they have very different agendas in parliament. And so this tribal litmus test, basically, that we take every, every time we have an election, arrives at the Knesset and the various tribes negotiate a coalition, negotiate power sharing, negotiate protections of each other. And so we're a system with very, very little formal formal bill of rights, almost nothing. I mean, we have no, you know, um, very, very few institutions, as I said. What we always had is the tribes. Those tribes over the last few years have begun to coalesce into two very distinct camps in which there's a religious right camp that is growing demographically fairly quickly and a secularist camp that is shrinking. And so the secularist camp really is worried that it's entering a period. The secularist camp also pays much, much higher taxes on average than the religiously conservative camp. Among the ultra-Orthodox, uh, half of all men don't participate in the workforce as a cultural choice. We have fairly low unemployment in Israel. It's not that there are no jobs. It's that they want to be, as their ideal, a learning society of seminary students. And so half the men don't work. So these are communities that condemn themselves because of cultural choices to poverty and live in one of the finest and most advanced healthcare and welfare systems in the world funded by the part of the country that is now a minority and feels under assault and feels that this judicial reform is essentially a way to keep them out of power forever and ever. But the long story short is that that creates a demographic disadvantage for the center-left, for secular Israel, for high-tech Israel, for the most productive parts of the Israeli economy. And that's driving a lot of this anger and fear. So is it safe to say then that the, the focus on judicial reform kind of obscures what, what protesters are, are actually upset about? I mean, are, are we witnessing uh, uh, an uprising of the secular Jewish engine of the Israeli economy? I wouldn't say it obscures. I think that it's the background to it. In other words, to, um, if you are uh, one of the protesters, one of the hundreds of thousands of protesters who are taken to the streets in Tel Aviv and around the country, you believe generally that it is that part of Israel 
that part, that very conservative, that very religious um, part of Israel um, declaring itself essentially um, allowed to take your time, your military service, your tax money for granted and not deliver for you what you need from the country, which is to be that liberal place that, you know, that part of the country wants to live in. And so there are these very, very profoundly different visions of Israel that are clashing right now. And the reform has been pushed in a way that really couldn't have resulted in anything else. In other words, the, the, the reformers, first of all, have not explained themselves well. They've pushed an extreme version of this reform. There are many, many proposals on the books over the last, I don't know, 10 weeks um, for a middle ground that actually solves the problem of the overpowerful Supreme Court, but instead of solving it by canceling all checks and balances, solves it by creating new checks and balances. Right, and you've you've written that this this may just be sort of like a forceful opening salvo uh, to, to kick off longer-term negotiations over judicial reform. That's what the right wing has claimed. The right wing supporters of this reform, after be, you know being stunned at how um, how much resistance and how much damage this has done, how much trust has been lost, say, look, guys, this was just a tactic. It, we, we presented a very extreme version of the reform so that you would negotiate us to a middle ground we actually wanted. But they were playing that game with democracy. Aviv, assuming there doesn't end up being a, an off-ramp here or, or a road to compromise, that the, the bills vault over each of these you know, legislative and social hurdles, what could that mean for the Israeli economy? It means a few things. First of all, we don't entirely know what it means. We've seen some immediate economic damage running into the billions of shekels. Investors moving money out because they're worried about uh, essentially um, chaos. You know, uh, I I don't think Intel uh, cares one whit what the internal structure of the Israeli judiciary looks like, but Intel is very worried that it has put tens of billions of dollars of investment in a place that might be falling apart, and so just the the sense of chaos is delaying meetings with major corporations on major investments that will never know what has been lost by those delays. We do know that billions have been lost uh, in actual money leaving the country by companies a little spooked by all of this. The question is, what's the end result? If the end result is a weakened system of governance and corruption and, and, and lack of protection of individual rights and a judiciary too weak for example, to ensure corporate, uh, you know, safety and the safety of, of money and the safety of contracts. Uh, if the government decides to, you know, not let money leave the country suddenly um, for one reason or another, there's a layer of protection there that's lost. And that's something we've heard from too many high tech CEOs to think that it's just, I don't know what, a protest movement by left wing CEOs. The part of Israel that produces the high-tech innovation, that produces the Google and Intel and Microsoft engineers, that produces more startups on the NASDAQ than any country on earth except, I think, America and Canada. I hope that's up to date. There might be one that's passed us since then. But uh, that part of the country is the part of the country that polls tell us overwhelmingly feels under assault. And that's going to have a, a cost to the Israeli economy. Do you take seriously uh, the predictions from former Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who's, who's now serving in the opposition, and uh, President 
Isaac Herzog, uh, that a failure to find a solution here could lead to violence or, or, or fractures, fundamental fractures in Israeli society? First of all, it takes very little for there to be violence in the streets. Everyone is very worried about violence in the streets because it's somehow symbolic of something. I'm not worried. Violence in the streets means there's one crazy guy who went violent in the streets. That's not fundamental to the country's history and future. The big question is that that second part of your question. The polarization itself isn't unique to Israel, and some of these aftershocks that it's causing in politics aren't unique to Israel. But what is unique to Israel, I think, is that it's... It's over nothing at all. And that, that, let's just explain that in a sentence. In the United States, on the substance, Democrats and Republicans are growing apart politically, emotionally, in terms of their political identity. But they're also substantively very divided on actual questions of, of substance. In Israel, the divide is profound and real and visceral and tribal and growing measurably and emotionally, and in terms of identity. But 80% of Israelis agree on about 90% of issues. The terrible irony here is, maybe the tragedy, if this doesn't actually resolve itself in a good way, is that we're very, very close. We're an inch away from a good ending, from not only a good ending, from being more democratic than we were before. Not only not less, but actually more. And what I mean by that is, if you imagine the, let's say, the the examples I gave from the reform, you imagine an override clause of 61. Well, what if it grows uh, to 80? What if a Supreme Court can rule something unconstitutional, but the Knesset can vote 80 votes, two-thirds in other words, like in the U.S., overcoming a presidential veto? Uh, suddenly there's no coalition in, I think, the history of Israel that had 80 seats. It would have to go across the aisle to the opposition. And and then you have a large majority, many of Israel's tribes, not two, would be able to overcome the Supreme Court. If you um, make the basic laws immune to judicial review, fantastic. Then demand 80 votes or 90 votes or some very high number to change them. Then you've just given us a constitution. Three steps away from a real system of checks and balances in which it's not only okay to weaken the court, it's necessary to weaken the court because we have other institutions and we can have a real balance. It was not a healthy situation what we've had until now. We have seen uh, policy papers come out of the right over the last two weeks looking for that compromise, um, understanding that the right behaved in a way that prevented compromise. And we have seen demands from the center left that are they're very close to each other. And so we have this culture that is a culture of polarization, even though the substance, we're not as divided on as we imagine. And um, I, I, I take that to be an optimistic sign that with a little bit of wisdom, we can, uh, we can find ourselves in a much better place than we are now, not only avoiding the terrible place to which we're headed, but in fact, be in a much better place. Well, Aviv, I really appreciate your, your time and your, your optimism. So. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Today's show is sponsored by Power Corridor. Power Corridor is the intersection of Wall Street and D.C. where money collides with power. It's where elections are decided, corporate dynasties are born or they die. 
and the decisions that shape the future of the United States are made. Written by Leah McGrath Goodman, an investigative journalist with a long track record of disruptive journalism, and brought to you by The Daily Upside, Power Corridor is your key to understanding the people and forces shaping our world. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. I'm now thrilled to bring on Rabbi Gilad Kariv, who was elected to Israel's Knesset in 2021 as a member of the Labor Party. Rabbi, thank you so very much for joining me. Thank you uh, for inviting me and Shalom. Shalom. Welcome to uh, the States. We're, we're thrilled to have you here. So we just heard from Haviv Redegor, who gave us a, a great recap of the judicial reform proposal and what it all means from Israel. Uh, but he suggested that the government's proposal might really be a prelude to a deeper negotiation. You've been among the leading negotiators in the opposition. Is he right? Does compromise still seem possible? Unfortunately, uh, till now, we didn't see a strong uh, desire of the government and the coalition to to reach a compromise. Um, I think they didn't uh, anticipate the size and the uh, strength of the civil protest against this uh, judiciary reform. And this uh, civil protest and also the criticism from around the world uh, might push them uh, either to suggest themselves in a unilateral manner um, a softer uh, version of the uh, reform or to, to reach a compromise. But again, till now, we don't see signs that they're serious enough in slowing their uh, rush to complete the legislation. Rabbi, in your mind, uh, candidly, I mean, why is the governing coalition so intent on pursuing these reforms? Israel's democracy is real is rich, but um, we can call it uh, also a thin democracy. We don't have many layers of democratic institutions. Uh, You know, for example, we are one of the few democratic countries around the world with one house of parliament. And according to the Israeli system, the executive branch, the government, has a huge impact on the parliament, on the Knesset. It led to a situation that the Israeli Supreme Court uh, played a very central role in defending liberal values, defending the rights of minorities. And the ultra-right and the ultra-conservative forces in Israel identified the Supreme Court and the judicial uh, uh, branch as a real obstacle in their way to implement uh, some disturbing elements of their uh, of their uh, uh, agenda. And they identify, and here, of course, I present my political uh, uh, views and analysis, they present the constitutional authorities of the Supreme Court as a major obstacle to their desire, for example, to... A, a legislate a new bunch of uh, religious laws. Or uh, in an, another important front, uh, the desire of the ultra-right in Israel to push forward the de facto annexation in the West Bank. So this reform is a precondition to the other disturbing plans of our uh, current coalition. 
Well, so let's zoom out for a second. Uh, you know, Rabbi, until 1996, the first election of Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, members from your party, the Labor Party, served as Israeli prime ministers for 32 out of 48 years. Uh, that was a year before I was born, by the way. So in my lifetime, uh, your party has been in power for less than two out of 26 years. What happened to the Israeli left? So first of all, I think, uh, look, it's a, it's a very important question because from my perspective, one way to understand the, the current development is to identify the rise of the ultra-right the populist ultra-right, and this is not, you know, it's not an Israeli phenomena. Uh, this is a global phenomena that uh, also impacts the Israeli, the Israeli public. But another perspective, and you presented it, it's the weakness of the Israeli left. And the weakness of the Israeli left is mainly reflected by the shift, the shift of voters from the Israeli left, not to the right, but rather to a group of parties that present themselves as, a, a, as, as the political center of Israel. And one of the characteristics of those uh, parties that today lead our bloc, you know, the party of Yair Lapid, who is the chairperson of the opposition, uh, the former prime minister of, uh, of, of Israel before the last elections. From my perspective, one of the characteristics of uh, those parties in the, in the center is their uh, thin ideology. It's the um, lack of real political alternative to, to, to the right. For example, take the Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, conflict. The Israeli public, in many ways, is a post-traumatic uh, uh, public. The peace process with the Palestinians failed. The last uh, big uh, political project that my party pushed forward was the Oslo Agreement uh, in the days of the late Prime Minister Rabin. Now, although I uh, fully support the two-state solution, and I think this is the only way to uh, secure the future of Israel as Jewish and democratic state, we, we need to be honest enough in order to identify the fact that right now we didn't succeed to uh, push forward a successful uh, peace process with the Palestinians. And the left wing in Israel lost its main flag which we, which was finding a political solution to the conflict with the Palestinians. What does the Israeli left's decline, you know, really fundamentally mean for the prospects of peace with the Palestinians? Um, are, are we further away than ever from, from that outcome? Unfortunately, yes. Again, one of the major differences between the left, uh, the left-wing parties in Israel and those parties that... Uh, uh, stay in the center, uh, the biggest difference has to do with our attitude to the Palestinian uh, conflict. You know, I'm as a member of the Labour Party, uh, not only I'm using the term two-state solution, this is a major element of our political philosophy. Um, I'm, I'm standing very firmly against the expansion of the settlements. 
I uh, uh, called the Israeli government and I worked very hard in order to renew the political dialogue with the Palestinian Authority. I think Israel has a solid uh, interest in strengthening the Palestinian Authority in spite of all the challenges that we have with the Palestinian Authority. And you know what? The Palestinians have a lot of problems and challenges with uh, their own uh, 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 political structure of the Palestinian Authority. But I'm convinced that without the Palestinian Authority, the situation in the occupied territories will be uh, much more troubling for Israel. Now, the <clears throat> center parties, the parties from the Israeli center, refrain from addressing the issue. For example, you know, uh, Yair Lapid, when he was the prime minister, he didn't meet Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, the chairperson of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, he didn't talk about a two-state solution as part of his uh, agenda. And right now, because of the, you said that you were polite enough to say the decline of the Israeli left, I will say the collapse of the Israeli left. Uh, you know, we are four uh, in the Jewish, among the Jewish legislators, we are only four uh, left-wing legislators out, out of uh, more than 100 Jewish legislators in the in 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 the Knesset. And when you first ran uh, for the Knesset in 2016, there were 16 members of, of your party, right? Yes. First of all, so we this have is, two parties. This is quick. This is happening quickly. Look, uh, more than that, uh, as you mentioned, we were the governing party of Israel. We established the, the state of Israel. Now, look, I think that we have a real, a real opportunity today because it's important to remember that the current government um, is not an ordinary conservative or right-wing party. This is the first party, the first government in the history of Israel with a very strong presence of the ultra-right and the ultra-nationalist forces. And I think we have a, a real chance to say that we are the real alternative to the rise of this populist, ultra-nationalist uh, wave in Israel. You landed in New York City this morning. Uh, I would encourage you to, uh, uh, I've had Israeli bagels. I would strongly <laughs> encourage you to pick up a dozen before you head home. <laughs> what does this, what is this current, what, what could this current government mean for Israel's relationship with the U.S. and its Western allies? Look, first of all, it's not, it's not a, a secret that uh, the American uh, administration and many of the Western governments are, are not happy with big parts of the new government's uh, agenda. It's not a secret because they said it, uh, they said it uh, out loud when it comes to the expansion of settlements, when it comes to uh, not having a political dialogue with the Palestinian Authority, when it comes to you know uh, um, the 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 way we we address the rights of the Arab minority inside sovereign Israel, and of course the judiciary uh, reform. So it is a clear uh, situation that the new government faces some serious challenges with its uh, Western allies, and I, I I want to remind us that. Uh, for Israel, this is a critical moment uh, when it comes to its uh, national security. The situation with Iran is not good. 
the geopolitical uh, situation in the Middle East is not uh, extremely stable. And this is a moment in which uh, we need more than ever our uh, alliance with Western governments, especially with the American, uh, American administration. Now look, I think that in foreign relations, usually we're not talking about, you know, a rapid change in relations. Sometimes, you know, a, a country acts in a certain a way that makes it clear that uh, it, it, changed, it, it changed its uh, international position. Russia and Ukraine, okay? It's clear that once Russia in, invaded uh, into the Ukraine, Russia departed from the, how to say, uh, uh, the, the global round table of uh, 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 reasonable countries, okay? Um, this is not the case with the judiciary reform. If this uh, legislation is approved in the Knesset, you know, on April 1st, it doesn't mean that uh, on April 2nd, uh, uh, the Biden administration and the British government and the German government will say, well, Israel uh, uh, left the Western, uh, the Western uh, uh, camp or the Western community. But in the long run, it will definitely weaken the relations between Israel and its Western allies. I think that for many years, um, the international community, especially the American administrations, knew that Israel is caught in a very challenging situation. Okay, uh, most Western uh, governments are not satisfied with the occupation, but there was a deep understanding that Israel is, is caught in a challenging sec national security situation. And one of the things that the foreign governments told themselves is we know Israel as a very strong, vibrant democratic mechanisms, including the independent Israeli court. And somehow it balanced the criticism, the legitimate criticism that Western government had in regard to the occupation or less the, 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 the fact, the lack of progress with the Palestinians. Now, when the current government is threatening some of those core uh, democratic mechanisms, our fear is that slowly there will be a shift in the attitude of the international community towards Israel. Rabbi, last question. Uh, you are a, a lawyer, you're a constitutional scholar, and uh, people will not be surprised to learn that you are also a rabbi. But they might be surprised to learn that you were actually the first rabbi from the Reform Judaism movement ever elected to the Knesset. So that makes you both a religious Jew and someone who is committed to the ideals of democracy. How is it possible for these seemingly conflicting ideas, you know, church and state, to live in harmony. So first of all, it's important to say that the important Western, I can even say American concept of uh, creating a wall between church and state um, has to do mainly with the institutional elements of uh, religious uh, life and statehood. It's, uh, it's mainly about the idea 
that in order to secure the well-being of faith and the well-being of democracy, it's a smart move to create an institutional separation between those uh, two kingdoms. Uh, unfortunately, in Israel, we are lacking this concept of separation. On the contrary, the government is deeply involved in, in religious life. And unfortunately, uh, uh, in Israel, it is not done in a pluralistic manner that gives equal support to all religious denominations. We suffer not only from a mixture between religious institutions and political uh, institutions, uh, we suffer also from an orthodox uh, monopoly in religious life. And one of my great efforts is to promote uh, religious diversity and religious pluralism, which is necessary in order to secure democratic uh, values. When you have a religious monopoly, uh, uh, definitely when it is legislated, by definition, it's extremely difficult to to guard the most basic democratic values. And in Israel, and you know what, I think this is slowly the case also in America. There is a deep linkage between issues of religion and state and the other democratic, uh, democratic principles. And those that are trying to harm the concept of separating the two, are usually the same political players that are trying also to lower other democratic uh, standards. Now, we need to keep in mind that Israel is defining itself as Jewish and democratic state. Uh, um, that's the place around the, the globe in which the Jewish people celebrates its uh, right for self-determination. If we are not talking about uh, uh, humanistic values, and human liberties, not only from a democratic perspective, but also from a Jewish perspective in Israel, we are losing a huge audience. Israelis, I think Israelis are committed to democratic values, but they are also committed, the Israeli Jews are also committed to maintain their Jewish identity and heritage. And that is why I chose to go into politics, because the progressive side, the liberal side, didn't have a, a, a Jewish vocabulary, didn't have a, a Jewish a, a box of political tools. And that, what, that is what I'm trying to suggest. Well, Rabbi, thank you so much for your time. Toda Rabbi. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. This was just one of about a million podcasts that we could have made about Israel. You know, while these debates over judicial reform and all the protests against it are going on, Israel's greatest adversary, Iran, agreed to restore diplomatic relations with the apple of Israel's high, Saudi Arabia. And in the West Bank, where there are millions of people under Israeli military control who could never dream of participating in its democracy, Tensions are soaring between security forces and Palestinian militants and Israeli settlers and Palestinian civilians. So yes, there is a lot more to say. I hope you uh, enjoy these deep dives. We'll be doing them every week from now on. If you do like them, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps get the word out. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday. <laughs>